0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, a podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. If you have a project or publication that you would like to discuss on the podcast next year... I would be delighted to hear from you. You can email me on press at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 4th of December 2017 and this is episode 43. In today's podcast Sarah Ray talks about her grandfather who was an army chaplain of the 68th Brigade 23rd Division on the Western Front during the Great War. This is based on her book which details his life and is titled The Half Shilling Curate and is available from Helion and Co. I talked to Sarah over a slightly crackly line from her home in Northumberland. Hi Sarah, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you begin by giving us some background on how you became interested in the Great War?
1: Well, my earliest recollections of my interest in the war... Go back to the memory of my late father when he used to show me old photographs of family members who had served in the armed forces and some of those men had been killed in action. I used to look into the faces of those men, unknown relatives who had died many years ago and I think it did have a profound effect on me. Also, I suppose, being brought up with two older brothers from a young age, I I remember us playing together with their plastic soldiers. They would choose to be British and as their little sister, I seemed to be always left with the Germans, needless to say. I always lost but we're going back a long time back to my childhood in the 1970s
0: Why did you feel um, a book was necessary about your grandfather?
1: When I was a child I knew very little about him Uh, I knew very little about his war experiences I was brought up in Pembrokeshire and my grandfather lived in Dorset my grandmother had died six months after I was born so all our holidays were spent with my grandfather down in Dorset on the Isle of Purbeck near Corfe Castle I was about six and a half when my grandfather died but I've vivid memories of him. I was very much in awe of him with uh, listening to his voice. He had this very magical, mysterious voice, slightly gravelly. And at every mealtime, it was my job to mash his food. I remember using the back of a fork to break down all the lumps. And in those days, he did as you were told and he didn't ask questions. Nobody had told me that due to his injuries sustained in the Great War, he had lost part of his throat. So thereafter, all his food had to be mashed for it to pass smoothly through the silver tube that had replaced the top part of his throat. It amuses me now um, when I think, why was my grandfather the only person who had his food mashed? But I never thought to ask the question. One day, I remember hearing that my grandfather had been very proud to serve with the Durham Light Infantry and that he'd been awarded the Military Cross Medal for Bravery, but I knew nothing more. In fact, my father and aunt knew very little, as my grandfather, like so many of the men, never spoke about their war experiences. My father and aunt did not know the full story as to why their father had been awarded the Military Cross. I suppose that after my aunt and father passed away, I had many questions that I personally wanted to seek out the answers. Then one day in Wales, um, at my mother's house, whilst looking through old family archives about six years ago, I discovered my grandfather's letters to his parents that had been written during the Great War. They were beautifully written, very descriptive, and I could see what he had seen all those years ago. They brought the war back to life. As I discovered the letters, all spread out in different boxes, I started to put them in date order. And so my grandfather's story began to emerge. I soon realised that a a choice had to be made. I could either put all the letters back into their boxes uh, and they would have stayed in their boxes perhaps for another hundred years. Or I could research, write and share his account so that others could benefit from knowing his story. I knew that he'd been a much-loved man throughout his life, so I felt that I had to share it. And as I began the research... I realized that I'd made the right decision,
0: so tell talk talking about your grandfather. Can you start at the very beginning and tell us a bit about his background, where he was come, and what he did before the war?
1: okay. He was the son of a Wesleyan Methodist minister, uh, born in Leeds in 1886. Uh, Little is known of his early education, but we know that in 1904, at the age of 18, he was head boy at Hertford Grammar School. It was at this point in time that he decided that he wanted to become a Wesleyan minister and follow in his father's footsteps. So he began his theological training at Cliff College in Derbyshire. And then a year later, he moved to Headingley College near Leeds, to form these artists trading. And it was at Headingley College on an outing to the East Riding of Yorkshire, where he was to see for the first time his future sweetheart. He was sent to the small village of Foggerthorpe to practice the art of preaching and giving sermons, when he noticed a beautiful young 16-year-old girl sitting in the chapel, in the congregation with her parents and brothers. Herbert was five years her senior, but it was a beautiful case of love at first sight. However, shortly afterwards, the young lady, May Louise Townsley, and her family emigrated back to Canada. Her mother was Canadian by birth, uh, and their future seemed more secure in British Columbia than it did in Yorkshire. My grandfather had to seek formal permission from his father to allow him to write to his daughter. My grandfather confided in his parents and my great grandparents kept all of those letters with his son opening up to them and telling them of this newfound love, which was almost, shall we say, should have been forbidden at that point. Uh, he was uh, he was not an ordained minister and he was very young. The letters were beautiful. And I'm just very pleased that my great grandparents kept all of those letters. It was certainly a, a lost age for love and ro- romance. In 19. 19- when Herbert's studies came to a a completion, his first priority was to visit British Columbia. No easy task um, over 100 years ago to see and woo this young May Townsley who we'd met in Foggeshall.
0: So we reached the war and Herbert actually joins up. Why did he choose to serve? Because I think he was... um with the church at the time, and and could have sought exemption.
1: Absolutely, you're quite right. Yes, it was in 1914 that Herbert was ordained into the church. And when the war broke out in August 1914, it was considered very much the righteous war. Most serving men came from Christian homes. For instance, 80% of the soldiers had attended Sunday school. Setting the seen further. You have to remember that conscientious objection was seen as unpatriotic and unchristian, and patriotism and faith were inextricably linked at the beginning of the war. Faith was very much a part of the men's moral compass. So having said that in terms of my grandfather's situation, there were some concerns that killing was fundamentally unchristian, but it has to be remembered that pacifism was very much a minority view in the church before 1914. So we do not know the exact date when my grandfather was, he applied to become an army chaplain, but he volunteered and he was accepted into the Department of Army Chaplaincy on Christmas Eve 1914. And as you say, he could have kept out of the war and kept to the safety of his own home parish. Uh, but like the other chaplains who volunteered, he had a strong sense of needing to join up and do his bit for God, King, and country. So on Christmas Day, he began his service as an army chaplain at Borden Camp near Aldershot. In Hampshire, and I think I have to add that um, he would have been an ideal candidate to become an army chaplain. He was strong, both mentally and physically. He was young, uh, aged only twenty-eight, forty, very fit, and he spoke French as well as. Um, being a, a competent horseman
0: So we reach, so he joins up in, in obviously on Christmas 1914, and then he's posted to France um, in 1950 Now he's attached, if I remember your book correctly, to a direct Light infantry battalion, which went on to serve um, in Flanders.
1: Well, he arrived in France in the summer of 1915 attached to the 68th Brigade comprising men from the 10th, 11th, Northumberland Fusiliers and the 12th, 13th Durham Light Infantry, which was part of the 23rd Division. When he arrived in France, you get this um, intimate report on his surroundings and his thoughts at the time, which included detail on the weather, the high spirits of the men arriving to fight the righteous war, to individual observations and traits of some of the more senior members of the brigade. He also commented on his fellow chaplains with amusing observations about their different religious traits. It was fascinating to learn of his views regarding some snobbery that existed between the lower and higher ranks in the army. You have to remember also um, that he was writing to his parents back home. His letters were interesting, sometimes profound, sometimes amusing. But at no time did he ever give his parents uh, any, any reason for concern He had no possible inclination that 100 years later his granddaughter would be sharing these writings and thoughts in a book about his life story. In terms of of his new role as an army chaplain, uh, it was definitely a great challenge. He was one of the youngest and one of the first Wesleyan chaplains to go out to the front. Most of the army chaplains were in their 30s, 40s and 50s, some even in their 60s. So my grandfather's youth would have certainly helped him in terms of building a more understanding relationship with the younger soldiers. The army chaplaincy department itself was very much in a state of disarray. There was no formal uh, formal guidelines for chaplains from either the church or the army. My grandfather had signed a a contract as a fourth-class temporary chaplain. Which included information on his pay, rations, and details uh, that he was to take orders given to him by superior military or naval command. But most chaplains signed the agreement for a temporary 12 month contract, meaning they could return home if they so wished after that time. However, my grandfather served from Christmas Day 1914. To the end of the war. In terms of his ha- actual experiences at the front, you get an impression of a young man working hard to improve himself. He was continually trying to earn the respect of his men, and this he did in many ways from carrying their guns on long marches to providing the men in the trenches with dry matches. There were compulsory church services for all the soldiers on a Sunday. But during the week, my grandfather organised many other services with smaller groups of men, looking for little spiritual guidance to larger, more formal midweek gatherings with hundreds of men attending. It is clear that his message as Padre reached out to the privates and through the ranks to the more senior members of the division. He definitely created his own role as an army chaplain spending many hours in the trenches. Uh, and he actually made himself a very valuable member of the brigade. At one point, he even went over the top. Uh, and remember, Padres did not carry guns. He soon realised at, at this point that his dog collar was acting as a very good target for the German snipers. So he quickly removed it.
0: So we get to late 15, and he is unfortunately wounded. Can you tell us about what happened to him there?
1: Yes, well, while serving at the front, he was stationed near Grenier just down the road from Armontier in the cellar of the village inn in a little place called Grispo, which the British soldiers used to call Grease pot Once again, my grandfather could have stayed out of harm's way further back from the action, but... He requested to be near the front. So he's billeted with two doctors a mile behind the advanced dressing station with the 69th Field Ambulance. The British had hidden some large guns under camouflage in the village. And for several days, the British hammered the German lines. Until one day, the Germans discovered where the shells were coming from. So, by return, the Germans started a heavy bombardment of the village, sending over large howitzer shells. The results were devastating. Soldiers and civilians ran up the road away from the shelling before the houses started to fall in. However, my grandfather, the doctors, and the men attached to the field ambulance continued to look for people left in the houses. The next thing Herbert realised that he was on the ground, kicking furiously and that one of the doctors was looking down at him with horror. It must have been a pretty ghastly sight. Uh, one of the medics thought he was gone. a shrapnel shell had torn through the side of his face, jaw and neck. He'd lost an awful lot of blood, and in a semi-conscious state, one of the medics poured brandy into his mouth. But just to add a note here, my grandfather was a, a great believer in the temperance movement before and during the war, and he was a teetotaler. He realised he was going to have his first taste of alcohol. He was too weak to protest. So the medic poured the brandy into his mouth and it poured straight out through the hole in the side of his neck. And my grandfather never... Tasted the brandy. The saddest part of my grandfather's experiences at this point was reading his account of how he felt when all his men had returned to see him laid on the stretcher, covered in blood and in a very bad way. My grandfather did not have the voice to reassure their worried faces. I think this memory haunted him for some time afterwards. I discovered letters from privates to doctors, all express all expressing their great fondness, Reverend Carroll and how they would miss him at the front. Whilst researching my grandfather's story, I was amazed to discover that there were some letters from a Roman Catholic army chaplain who had written home to Oldham, telling his parishioners about the Wesleyan chaplain who he'd met and served with at the front. And he described him with such kindness and was obviously taken with the young chaplain, who didn't actually name in person. But later on, he wrote that the poor Wesleyan's luck didn't get any better as he was on the hospital ship, Anglia, when she hit a mine in the English Channel. So at this point in my research, I knew without any doubt that he'd been writing home about my grandfather, the Reverend Carroll. The first miracle of my grandfather's story is most probably that he survived his initial injuries. And the surgery, the casual clearing station at Balliol that followed, um, where a tool had to be made to remove some of the shrapnel that was precariously lodged in the back of his throat. The second miracle was that he was finally on board the hospital ship Anglia on his way back to Blighty when she hit a loose German mine. The ship was laden with approximately 400 sick and wounded Men. My grandfather had pe- been taken on board as one of the 13 top cases, and that means that he was on a stretcher uh, in a weak state and unable to walk. When the angle hit the German mine, Herbert's bed was close to the point of the explosion. At the time when the blast occurred, the nursing sister and Audley were attending to him. Both were killed instantly. As the, as the water began to rise, my grandfather knew that in order to survive, he would have to get onto his feet and find his way to the deck. Somehow, he did find the strength to rise. And he hadn't realised at the time, but he'd actually been wounded in the blast. He had a deep gash. That was cutting through the back of his head from ear to ear, he had further minor injuries too, and at this point he felt that he had been saved by a guardian angel. He talked about this many times after his experiences on the anglia. He found the strength to get to get onto his feet, and he found himself eventually up on the deck, which at this point was sitting was was tilting as the ship was beginning to sink. He could see men drowning in the water below. Then he saw some rafts that were jammed onto the side of the ship, and he used all his new strength to release them and to throw them down to the men in the water below. the grandfather stayed on the ship until the final moment when the Anglia sank. My grandfather knew he was a strong swimmer and he took the risk of going down with the ship to swim back to the surface once the Anglia had disappeared. He was in the water for some time until a patrol boat picked him out of the water and took him to the harbour at Dover. It amuses me that, he wrote later on, that when he arrived in Dover, his arrival could have been more sensational rather than ecclesiastical, as he had no clothing apart from his small watch. You can imagine the relief when he was on terra firma, and someone placed a dry blanket around him. Incidentally, there was very little uh, known about my grandfather's actions on that fateful day. He did not talk about what, had, what he had done, um, and not once did he consider himself any sort of hero. Due to his wounded face, jaw and throat, it's important to note that he was unable to speak. He was then sent to London to Beckett's Hospital, where he underwent further surgery to repair his face, throat and jaw. It was at this point, too, that my grandfather wrote down what had happened to him. And once again, these private writings and his shared thoughts at the time form part of his story in the book. You can see from photographs that When he volunteered, he certainly had the appearance of a very boyish, he had boyish features, he was very young and fresh-faced, but by the end of the war, you could see he'd become a man. Returning for a moment to the sinking of the Anglia, I couldn't believe it when I discovered that following the sinking of the ship, the, uh, the beverages company, Bovril, decided to print a rather distasteful advert, which would be totally not politically correct today published in most of the mainstream newspapers, ignored the fact that over 130 men and one woman had perished on board the Anglia. And instead, it focused on the merits of the hot beef beverage with the headline, Bob Vril gives strength to win this advertisement you know has to be seen to be believed and again it's illustrated
0: in the book so he returns back to england and i what happens to him um, for the rest of the war
1: actually i should say just so that listeners understand his story in terms of his sweetheart in canada my grandfather's brother-in-law knowing how much herbert would have wanted to see his sweetheart sent a telegram from london to british columbia stating herbert survivor anglia very ill london recovering come And we're very lucky because we still have this, the actual original telegram in in our archives. So in summary, May Townsley left her home and came across to England to be with Herbert and to help him through the following months of recovery. One surgeon had told my grandfather that, that he would give him back the gift of speech, but he would never be able to preach again. Herbert proved him wrong. It took months for my grandfather to recover but during that time uh, his love for the young may townsley grew each day and in february 1916 they were married it was a quiet low-key wedding Herbert's voice was beginning to return but he was still very very weak he left hospital uh continued his recovery under the watch for lives his new bride and his parents he was continually being reassessed with with medicals and his sick leave was extended until December 1916. However, he wasn't going to sit around when there was a job to be done. So he returned to service in June of that year as an army chaplain with the 66th East Lancashire Division in Colchester. His voice was not fully recovered at this point, but he felt that he could continue his role as an army chaplain in that home camp. He desperately wanted to return to the front to be back with his men, but he was never fit enough to return to overseas service. So when the 66th Division moved out to France, Herbert had to be reassigned to a new post on the home front. Having said that, my grandfather could have retired from service as a chaplain with the army again. Remember, he he had served his 12 months and more, but he felt that he had a moral duty to continue his work. So the rest of the war, he served as a Wesleyan chaplain in Portsmouth, and there's a full chapter in the book that gives the reader a very good insight into the role of a chaplain working on the home front. He helped to prepare the soldiers for their experience to come on the battlefields of Europe and beyond. He comforted the wounded and the sick visiting the local hospital. He buried the dead, he preached, and he gave services in the town and at the garrison. He worked with both the army and the Navy. He continued to write home to his parents, and there were some lovely descriptions of some of the people with whom he worked, including one of my favourites, which was a rather eccentric American army chaplain, whose title was a little bit of a mouthful, Gunner the Reverend, Sir genial cave, brown cave, baronet. He was one of many. Anyway, at times, Herbert did struggle with his voice but he was determined to make a full recovery and to continue his work as a military chaplain. A couple of newspaper reports indicated that it was no easy task for him to speak for any length of time due to wounds sustained during active service at the front in Flanders. But he continued with his role throughout the war right to the end of hostilities in 1918.
0: How did he reflect on the war in terms of his faith? Did it strengthen it or did it shape it in any way?
1: Well, My grandfather's faith never faltered. He had experienced the aftermath of the Battle of Luz. He had escaped death twice himself, and he had seen the horrific casualties returning home from the Western Front. In terms of his own experiences, he believed God had brought him through, as he described it, the valley of the shadow of death. And because he believed that, he did not hesitate to believe that God had sent him into it. The last chapter of the book concludes with his life after the Great War, and it covers the period of World War II, where he experienced a new war, living through London during the Blitz of 1940. And again, despite everything that he saw and experienced, his faith never faltered.
0: How have you reflected on his life in terms of writing the book? What, 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 How have you viewed him as an individual as a result of going through this sort of creative process?
1: I first, Firstly, I have to acknowledge the fact that I'm immensely proud of my grandfather. Uh, as a young child, I had no idea that he had served as an army chaplain during the Great War. He loved life, he loved animals, and he loved people. As a young child, I was more of him. His mystical voice, his Thick head of white hair and his weather-beaten complexion. And all, and all these years later, I'm still in awe of him, but now it's for his gallantry and for his great shining example of believing in faith during war. During my research, I discovered many folk who remembered him from their childhoods and their school days. Some had even kept their letters written by my grandfather from many decades ago. I found several people who remembered him from Acton and Ealing during the trials and hardships of the Second World War. My grandfather was an incredible Christian, a sublime example of a man of God. He came from a generation in the church that no longer exists today, despite being the only known chaplain to be awarded the Military Cross Medal for his actions on a ship during the war. He never considered himself a hero, and when he returned to life as a Methodist minister, he did so continuing his work, with no, seeking no praise or promotion was simply content with dedicating his life to the Methodist Church and to his family. He touched everyone who he met and so I'm incredibly proud of him and whenever the name the Reverend Herbert Butler Cowell is mentioned I feel pride and there's a light within me that shines and as strange as it sounds at times I feel as though my grandfather has guided me through these years of research and writing his
0: story. Finally Sarah, Christmas is coming um, upon us very shortly. Where can people get your book from?
1: People can purchase the book from the usual main outlets, including High Street Bookshops, through my publishers, Helion & Company, Amazon, and through my website. If anyone would like a signed personal gift for the festive season, they can contact me directly through my website, which is www.halfshillingcurate.com. If anyone listening to this podcast knew my grandfather or who may have come across him in their own research please do contact me again through the website
0: and you're also available for wfa talks if i'm not um, if i'm correct
1: yes that's that's correct indeed yes please just contact me again through the website or through my email
0: sarah thank you very much for your time
1: it's been my pleasure thank you